Okay, let's look at Psalm 2 together, and I'm going to read this this morning. This is God's Word. Psalm 2, the reign of the Lord's anointing. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens, what does He do? But He laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And I will tell of the decree... The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Two weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 1, and I hope you remember that the takeaway, the walk away that we had with Psalm 1 was the realization that there are two ways, right? There are two paths that you can take in life. And Psalm 1 was very urgent in the way it spoke to us, right? That you need to know the way you're going, right? And you need to be sure that you are by the grace of Jesus in the congregation of the righteous. And so many scholars believe that Psalm 2 really is a continuation of Psalm 1. Psalm 1's more personal, right? It hits you hard with those, that question, which way do you belong? Do you belong to the congregation of the righteous? And then Psalm 2 takes that even further and says that not only do we need to know which way we're going personally, but we need to know which way history is going as well. And so that's really what Psalm 2 is. It's saying that the world has been promised to Jesus. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. Uh, psalm 22, other psalms you read talk about this coming Messiah, and so we're going to see that further today. But Psalm 2 is basically saying, listen, the world has been promised to Jesus, and it's His party, not your party. It's His party. It's His world, okay? And so Psalm 2 really is kind of a worldview-shaping psalm, okay? It, it, it shows us that in at least four ways I think we'll see this morning. Uh, the first one is this, it's going to show us that there is a world that we live in, the world we live in is a world that hates. The world we live in is a world that hates. Secondly, it will show us about this throne that's been established, the Messiah, and it's a throne that comforts, secondly. Thirdly, we'll see that God makes this decree that determines, it's deterministic, it determines history. And then fourthly, we'll see a gospel that calls. So let's just jump in this morning, time's limited here. So first of all, we'll see a world that hates. So Psalm 2 is really, again, we see a continuation of Psalm 1. And if you remember in Psalm 1, it warns us about taking the counsel of the wicked right of of the world. And so Psalm 2 basically says, if you take the counsel of the wicked in the world, it spells out for you what it would look like for that to go international, worldwide, okay? And so the Psalm starts with this bad news, this bad news that the nations and the kingdoms, the rulers, the kings of this world and the attitude of them are really an attitude of rebellion. We don't want this man, the Messiah, to reign over us. We don't want him to rule over us. We want our own kingdoms. We want our own rule, okay? That's kind of how Psalm 2 begins. And as you read the New Testament, you'll see, the more you read the New Testament, that the Psalms are quoted so many times in the New Testament, and it just so happens in God's providence that Psalm 2 is quoted in Acts chapter 4. Do you remember this in the early church? 
where the early church is talking about how this ultimate rebellion of the kings and the, and the nations uh, was shown by Jesus being crucified on the cross, right? Because the world said, we don't want you, Jesus, to reign over us, so we're going to crucify you. And Acts chapter 4 tells us of that. And also, if you remember in Acts 4, Luke tells us that the Jewish authorities were angry at the apostles. The Jewish authorities felt threatened that the apostles were spreading this message of Christianity and of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And so, as they were threatened, the apostles come back to the early church, they come back to the believers, and they begin to tell them of how they have been threatened. Okay, And they come together and they begin to devote themselves to prayer. And in their prayer, and you can read that prayer in Acts 4, do that today when you get home, read that prayer, it's a powerful prayer. But in that prayer of the early church, in Acts 4, they quote Psalm 2. Okay, And in that prayer, they are saying that basically saying that the world is a hostile world. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you are going to live in a hostile world and you are going to receive persecution. Not only is it a hostile world, but it's a persecuting world. And so they realized that the hostility and the hatred that was aimed at Jesus was also going to be aimed at them. Okay, And so they begin to, to, to realize that Jesus' people will pay a huge price in belonging to Him. And we've seen that over history, right? Countless millions and millions of believers who have lost their lives, who have lost their livelihood, who have lost their families, right, for the sake of following Jesus. And so hatred for, for Christ, according to Psalm 2, will always spill over onto those who follow Jesus. So Psalm 2, right from the get-go, the psalmist is telling us we live in a rebellious world, a world that doesn't receive Jesus naturally. And we also live that we live in, we also tells us some two lives us that we live in a persecuting world. And then thirdly, it shows us that we live in an insane world, okay? And that's the assumption that we can draw from the very first words in Psalm two. In our English versions it says, Why do the nations rage, right? And really, that why, that question why is intended to carry over into following phrases as well so why do the nations rage it's the first question the psalmist asks and then the why is supposed to carry through in our english versions it doesn't continue with why it just says why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain but really you can put why there and so it would, it would read like this why do the nations rage why do the people's plot in vain why do the kings of the earth why do they set themselves against the lord and his anointed and then fourthly why do the rulers come together and take counsel against the Lord and His anointed. And so the psalmist's question is saying, are you insane? Why would you stand against and place yourself and pit yourself against the God who rules the world? And so what, we're, what are we to make of the beginning, just from the get-go, the beginning of Psalm 2? Well, if you're going to have a right view of God's kingdom, you have to have an accurate view of the world that you live in. So that's what the psalmist is trying to help you see here. You need to have an accurate view of the society and the culture and the world that you live in, right? Right? You know, what did Jesus tell us in 1 John? You remember this in 1 John? What did He say? If the world hates you, right, it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of this world, right, but I chose you, Jesus says, out of this world, therefore the world hates you. That's what Psalm 2 is saying. Listen, you live in a world that hates me and will hate you if you're a follower of me. 
So the first thing we see right off the bat in Psalm 2 is that we have to embrace the realism of the Bible's view of the world so that we can really understand what to expect of the world that we live in. And it's good to be awakened sometimes, isn't it? I find myself even getting comfortable in the world that I live in. You know, Botetourt County, it's such a nice, pretty county. Not a lot of crime here. You know, it's a comfortable place to live. And that's wonderful, but that's also really dangerous. Really, I have to get into downtown Roanoke to keep it real sometimes. I really do. You know? I've got to keep it real. I've got to go to Walmart to keep it real. You know? Nothing knocking Walmart, but I've got to keep it real. You know, I've got to remember the world I live in is dangerous. And the people, you know, it's so easy for, for me, I'll speak of me, to slip into, oh, that's a good person. Oh, that's a, a nice, sweet country. But it's a country that hates Jesus. And it's the nations we live in. You know, oh, we go to Europe, it's so pretty. There are lots of people there who hate Jesus and who hate God's kingdom. And so we've got to have an accurate view of the world that we live in. Don't fall in Pleasantville and just pretend that everything's hunky-dory. It's not. Folks, we live in a world that hates Jesus. Psalm 2 is helping us see that, okay? We gotta expect, know what we can expect of the world that we live in. So that's the first thing we see. Now, the second thing we see in Psalm two is not only do we see a world that hates, but we see a throne that comforts. Okay, a throne that comforts. Now, look at God's response to this worldwide human rebellion. Particularly, I love verse four. Look at God's response to the kings of the earth who kind of strut their stuff. Look at what He says: He who sits in heavens, what? He laughs. And he holds them in derision. Now, what's the picture here? God's not faith, is he? You know, we watch the news. You know, you, you look at the news on your phone. You're watching on TV and you see the crazy. I mean, Doug prayed for that this morning about Israel. We see the crazy military dictators. We see corrupt politics and politicians. It's very easy for us to grow cynical, right, of leaders, particularly of politicians, but even ministries and pastors. It's easy for us to grow cynical, Right? We see the imminent threat of war. We see suicide bombings and all the stuff on the news. And that's why I don't like to to read or watch the news too much because it's so easy for me to default to cynicism. It's so easy for me just to to get phased by all that I see. But God is not phased, right? He's not phased. He's not threatened. And so we see that Psalm 2 tells us that God's not some softy in the sky. But here's the picture of God that Psalm 2 paints. That there is no human power None, no human power that can destroy God's kingdom. And so we see in the first, from the get-go in the psalm, we see these earthly kings kind of strutting their stuff and flexing their muscles, their kingdom muscles, right? And the psalm, psalmist gives us God's response that he laughs at and he holds them in derision. Now why does this matter? Why does this matter for us? Because it focuses, on, focuses us on the truth. Let me, let me illustrate this. My former pastor, Sinclair Ferguson, he wrote a great book called Deserted by God. and He mentions in this book that the onset of anger sometimes can make the symptoms of depression disappear. And he goes on to tell this story about this famous 19th century uh, London physician who was highly sought out by patients who struggled with depression. And so he would receive these patients. He would... Uh, you know, listen to their stories and sometimes he would refer them to this first class consultant and doctor living in Scotland who dealt with depression. So these patients that he referred to this doctor in Scotland, they would make the several day journey by horse and buggy to Scotland uh, to go and see this doctor that they had been referred to. And when they got there, they discovered that no such doctor ever existed. It's a day's journey getting there and they realized this guy doesn't exist. 
And so they would return on their journey home scheming on how they would just unfold their livid anger towards Dr. Williams, who had referred them. They were furious, but no longer depressed. See the point? Furious, but no longer depressed. Something else grabbed their attention. And that's kind of the effect that verse 4 should have with us as we read the psalm. That we hear the scary bravado of the kings of verse 3, but then we refocus with this view of the laughing God, the King of the universe who laughs at the pathetic power of the nations and the kingdoms. And so look at God's response to the best that the human kings have as they parade and their power and strut their stuff. If you place the words of the rulers in verse 2 and 3 against God's actions that He takes against them, in verses 4 through 6, you see this stark contrast. What does God say in verse 6? As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The, the I here is emphatic in the passage. God is saying, I have installed my king. And he refers to him as his anointed in verse 2. So what, is, what king is this psalm talking about? It's not just talking about any run-of-the-mill king from David's line. It is talking about a king from David's line, but it's not talking about a, just an earthly king. It's talking about the final culminating king of David's line, the Messiah. Jesus Christ, the descendant of David. And so in verse 6, God is mocking their tiny dust speck rebellion and saying, listen, I have installed my king and he will rule the world. And here's the kicker. Notice, where has God installed this, this, this Messiah this ultimate king. Where has he installed him? He says he installed him in where? In, in Zion, right? Now, it's interesting. If you look up the reference references to Zion, they're all through, throughout the Old Testament. You know the first place where the word or the place Zion is mentioned is in 2 Samuel 5. And if you remember what's going on there in that passage, David has defeated the, the, the Jebusites and their army. And he's also taken hold of their stronghold. And the, Zebus, the Jebusite stronghold in 2 Samuel 5 just happens to be Zion. Now let me tell you a little bit about Zion. You can look this up in just a Bible dictionary online. It's really interesting. Here's the stronghold of Zion. And you think, oh, it must be a great, huge place, right? No, it's only 11 acres. It's 11, I mean, that's, some of your yards are bigger than Zion. It was only 11 acres. And it was in this puny kingdom called Judah. That was Zion, Right? And so, what's the message here? Zion eventually will become uh, God's place and it will fill the earth with His glory. And so what's the message here? That God's, God begins His visible kingdom in a tiny banana-shaped hill in a backwater place called Judah. That's Zion. God plants His kingdom in weakness. It's pretty cool. Pretty staggering. God plants His kingdom in weakness, but because He, remember this, here's the comfort. Because He is the one who establishes it. He is the one who plants it. It proves to be undefeatable. Even though it's this measly little 11 acres, He plants it in weakness and it proves to be a place that's undefeatable. It's this amazing combination that we see laid out for us in Scripture. And we see it again and again, this combination of weakness and invincibility. Right? And so it reminds me of this story of the Australian missionary uh, Dick McClellan. Dorough Davis told this in his commentary on the Psalms. That's where I got this from. And fascinating story. But Dick McClellan was a missionary uh, from Australia. He mainly did missions work in southwestern Ethiopia. And he tells about this story of 42 evangelists who, who came from the Walata tribe. They were indigenous missionaries. 
Uh, McClellan spent his life work ministering to these people, and the church grew up in this area, these, these tribes. And so these indigenous missionaries uh, sent out by their tribe wanted to go and take the gospel to other tribes in their region. Pretty awesome. And so these men, they left their families, these 42 indigenous missionaries, they left their families, moved to these other villages and areas. They rented land. They began to build houses. They planted their crops. They had their neighbors over. They began to share the gospel to these other villages in southwest Ethiopia. Many folks were converted and came to know the Lord. And so houses of worship were built. Fellowship became the routine. Prayer and worship became the routine in these areas. Church were planted. People were coming to know Jesus, converted to Christ. The whole culture of these villages in southwest Ethiopia began to change. Society began to change. But change was happening too fast. And so converts to Jesus were no longer going to the witch doctors to seek healing, right? Because they came to know Jesus. They no longer slipped bribes to the government, uh, uh, government officials for needs or favors. Society was changing here. And so a police lieutenant fed up with this arrested one of the evangelists, one of the indigenous missionaries named Atero. And he chained his wrists together, clamped his ankles together in heavy leg irons so that he could only hop and not walk. And then he began to parade Atero around this village and let it be known that anybody who proclaimed Jesus or followed this new religion would be bound and shackled like Atero was. He ordered Atero in public to go back to Walata where you came from and take your Jesus with you. He said, we don't want your Jesus here. Then Atero steps forward and said this, this. This is awesome. He says, Oh, sir, listen. Please listen. I can go, but the gospel will stay. By the power of God, I planted Jesus in this place. He is planted in the hearts and souls of these people. I can go, but Jesus will stay. I planted Jesus here, and He will stay. You see, sometimes God's kingdom looks a little flimsy, right? Zion, 11 acres, flimsy little place, right? Seemingly, this cute little Zion. But God has planted His kingdom there, and it will stay. And no one can do anything about it. That's comforting, folks. God's planted His kingdom in this world. He's planted His kingdom in your heart. And it's going to stay. And nothing, no, nobody can do anything about that. There is no power. There is no human power that can push you away from the Lord if you are truly in Christ. He will stay. Thirdly, we see a decree that determines. So do you think that God needs our permission to establish His kingdom? What do we pray in the Lord's prayer? prayer thy will be done, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Do we need God's permission for Him to establish His kingdom in our lives? His kingdom in our world? Well, of course we do, right? And yet we saw early, earlier in the psalm that the the world's kings in verse 3 and 4, verses 1 through 3 are kind of strutting their stuff, right? In their arrogance, they're not ready to receive God in His kingdom. We're here in verses 7 through 9, we see God speaking His divine decree to His anointed kingdom, Messiah. First He says, look what He says in verse 7, You are My Son, and I have begotten you this very day. In other words, the Lord has appointed Him to rule God has installed him into his kingdom. That, that word begotten here means to install, that God has installed him. He is the Messiah, and he is the rightful king. He has been installed into his kingdom. And then in second, uh, secondly, we see in verse 8, we see the scope of his rule. We, we saw that he has properly been installed into his kingdom. Jesus the Messiah is reigning over his world and his kingdom. 
Second, we see the scope of his rule, right, in verse 8. That it will be, what is the scope of his rule? He is ruling what? The nations. And his rule extends to where? The ends of the earth. It all belongs to Jesus. Abraham Kuyper was a Dutch theologian. Listen to what he said about this, the scope of Jesus' rule. He says, this is real comforting. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mind. There's not one square inch in all of creation that Jesus doesn't say it's mine. That's comforting, folks. Even your heart, even what you struggle with, Christ says, well, it's mine. Your riches, your wealth, your resources, your house, your children, your work, everything Christ says, you're mine. And it's mine. I own it. The scope of His kingdom is infinite. It's infinite. And then thirdly, in verse 9, we see that the Lord tells us about the force of His rule. Not only that He's been properly installed, not only the scope of His kingdom, but thirdly, we see in verse 9, it tells us about the force of His rule, that it's powerful. What does He say in verse 9? You will break them with an iron rod. The Son, talking about the Messiah, He will break you, break them with an iron rod. You will smash them to pieces like a clay pot. Well, that seems harsh, but when you understand verse 9 in light of verse 3, the kings and the rulers surround strutting their stuff, it's not as harsh as you think. Because you see, when the time comes to fully enforce his rule when jesus returns again there is going to be a second advent christmas we celebrate advent right it's the first coming of jesus there will be a second advent and it's not going to be all cheery like the first advent he is going to come and establish his kingdom of course psalm 2 tells us and when the time fully comes to him for him to enforce his rule do you think jesus is going to be fully embraced with open arms by the world no it's not he will come to a God-hating and a God-defying world, won't He? And what does Paul say in Philippians? But every knee will bow. And what? Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone will be confessing that Jesus is Lord. So we get the picture here of what God's decree gives. Here we have this appointed king, Jesus, who has worldwide influence, right, and power. His kingdom is going to be established in overwhelming force and majesty and glory. And guess what? This decree is happening, and it's controlling all of history. You see, verses 7 through 9 are God's will for Jesus Christ. His life, His word, His decree here, is, it, the certainty even of His decree here should totally shape and transform our world and life view. This decree here that God's kingdom has, co- has been established, its scope is infinite, and it's going to come in power, should comfort us, folks. It should color the way we look at the news. It should color the way we receive and look at politics and the conditions of the world that we live in. And when we look at the news, or when, we, when stuff hits us that we don't understand, we don't always understand, we can't always make sense, right, of what's going on in the world around us. But according to Psalm 2, you should know that here is where history is heading. It's His story. Right? And we know where history is heading, and that's comforting that God's kingdom is established. Nothing can be done about that. The scope of His kingdom is infinite. Everything in your life is His. All of it is mine, He says. And it's going to come in force. And there is no earthly power that can stop it. 
You better believe that I think the pastor Saeed, the, the pastor in Iran who is still imprisoned, his wife here in, in the United States, you better believe that this passage would be comforting to him to think that my Iranian captors who will not let me out of prison, they have nothing against the power of my Messiah and the scope of his kingdom. It's here now. It's comforting. And finally, we must hear the gospel that calls. Now, notice in the last few verses, verse 10 through 12, that God gives this decree, right, to the kings and says, I'm about to bust you up like a clay pot and an iron rod if you don't submit. So it's with force, right? But notice here, even in verses 10 through 12, there's this invitation of the gospel, even to those who oppose him. That's mercy right there. You see, the rebels are given opportunity for mercy. They are called to make the only reasonable response. What are the incentives that God gives here? There's two. There's, the first one is this. There's a danger to avoid. What does he say? Lest the son become angry and the, ver- the, the word here, you will perish in your tracks. So there's this strong incentive of danger. Avoid it. If you want to avoid danger, because you're about to perish in your tracks if you don't turn to the son. But then there, there's this invitation of mercy. The incentive of trusting him. What does the last verse say? That there is refuge to be found in him. Derek Kidner said this in his commentary on the Psalms. He said, see, there is no refuge from him. There is no refuge from the Son. Only refuge to be found in him. There is no refuge from him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue someday will confess. And if you're not in him, you will perish. So both danger and delight are offered here for us, right? They're both held out to them to move them to repentance. So what is the call here to the kings? What is the call here to us in verses 11 and 12? What must we do? And that's what verse 11 and 12 say. We must serve the Lord with fear. We must rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, the psalmist says, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. What does this kissing the Son mean? It seems a little strange, doesn't it? What does that verbiage mean, kissing the Son? It means a sign of submission. Kissing means a sign of submission here. You know, way back then when this psalm was written, the Near, Near Eastern kings, when they would go out and they would defeat another kingdom, right? What would they do? They would defeat another kingdom. They would bring back the spoils of that kingdom. They would come back to their kingdom. There would be this great grand parade. Uh, and the kings leading the procession would have all of the king, nation's kings that he had defeated in chains like slaves behind him. And he would come back home and he would give this report of victory and he would say, the defeated king, the king of wherever where I defeated has come to my kingdom and he is going to have a ceremony where he will kiss my feet. And that's a sign of submission. That this king went in and took over this other king's territory and that other king is now under his submission. You remember this in the Gospels, the well-known passage in Luke where the the woman, the prostitute, came and anointed Jesus' feet, remember this, with expensive perfume. And what did she do? This precious sign of submission, what did she do? She kissed Jesus' feet, didn't she? It's the sign of submission. I mentioned earlier this missionary, Dick McClellan, right? And he, he tells another story in his book. Uh, he's got all of his, his stories in this uh, biography of this. It's fascinating. And he tells another, another story about this witch doctor named Anissa and his slave called Gebre. And both of these guys, Anissa and Gebre, Anissa the witch doctor, Gebre the slave, were curious about Jesus. They had heard about Jesus, and so they came to Dr. McClellan's missions, missions home there in Ethiopia 
to know because they thought that Dr. McClellan was Jesus. So they came and asked him knock, knock, knock one night. Kind of rose him from his rest and said, are you Jesus? And he's like, well, no, but let me tell you who he is. And so he invited these guys in. Now in God's providence that night with Dr. McClellan, there was another missionary there with him who was a, who was a native evangelist and really spoke that language well. So together, Dr. McClellan and this native evangelist spent three days telling this witch doctor and this slave about the truth of Jesus and the gospel story to them. And by God's grace, Nissa and Gebra both believed and came to saving faith in Christ. And they together went out into the village the next day and they confessed their faith before a group of other Christians in that village. And they stood side by side and they raised their right hands high and publicly renounced Satan. We renounce Satan. We renounce the blood sacrifices that we've done in the past. We renounce all evil practices we renounce all of our sin, they say publicly. Then Dr. McClellan reports that they raised both of their hands as high as they could and said, saying, having renounced Satan and believing in my heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and has died for me, I take Him as my Savior with two hands and I will never deny Him. You see, to give both hands is a sign of complete surrender. You know what the international sign of surrender is? holding up your hands. They gave complete surrender and submission to Jesus. Here in the text, it's the same. To kiss the Son is a sign of complete submission and surrender. So what about you this morning? Are you surrendering to Jesus? Are you kissing the Son? Are you going to take Jesus with both hands? Not just one hand, not just a partial hand. But do you submit to Jesus fully? Do you submit to Jesus fully? Oh Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for helping me make sense of Psalm 2. Gosh, it's powerful. It is so powerful. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that Jesus, you submitted. You you paved the way for submission. That you're not a God of the universe who just rules with an iron fist and demands that we submit to you, but instead you paved the way. You led in submission by not considering equality with God something to be grasped, but you made yourself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, a slave. And Lord, you submitted yourself to the cross. And the invitation... You were submitted yourself to the cross and then, God, you rightly exalted Jesus to your right hand. So there is this humiliation and then there is this exaltation. Because, Jesus, you have been exalted, you submitted to the cross, you received our sin, past, present, and future, that we can submit to you and we can exalt you. And that you will lift us up in due time as we submit to you. So thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you led the way. Help us to submit to you. Help us to submit our own sin to you. Lord, there's, there's nowhere we can take it. We can't fix it on our own. There is no sin that we can clean ourselves. Lord, you have to be the one to clean us. So help us to submit to you and submit our sin. Help us to submit, perhaps even more difficult, is to submit our wills and submit our plans to you. There are probably many of us in here, Lord, who, who are planning, who are good planners and we like to plan our entrance and we like to plan our exit and we like to plan our strategies and we like to plan what others are going to say and 
how others might adore us or forgive us or whatever. We can't. Help us to submit that to you, Jesus. To submit our futures to you. Submit our children to you. Submit our, our resources to you. Help us, Lord, to give generously of our lives and our resources and ourselves. And find that, Lord, ultimate joy and happiness and blessedness comes in submitting to you. Thank you, Father, that you love us. Help us to rest in that today and enjoy that. Blessed be your name, Father. We love you and we adore you. Hey, can we stop?